I am now recording. There are golden lines. Yeah. Golden roads, take me home. To the the place. (laughs) 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 Mike drop. Mike drops it on that. (laughs) Seagull drop. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we learned along the way. So, hey Chris, how's your week going? Uh, It is going well. It has come to my attention this past week that I absentmindedly whistle to myself. This came up while I was doing the dishes and my wife was in the other room and she, she commented on it after the fact. She was like, do you know that you were whistling? I was like, no, no, I didn't. And then she actually stepped out of the house today for a very brief period, which is the first time I've been alone in the house for a while. And so I'm working and just working on things. And I suddenly noticed that I was talking to myself out loud, like talking almost to the code. And then I I saw it happening. And then I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do with that? Is that, should I be worried? (laughs) And this wasn't (laughs) even like I was alone for a long time. This wasn't like, well, I've been working alone in the house for weeks now. And I'm just, I've started talking to myself. No, this was like an hour. So I'm not sure what to do with all of that. I don't know if that's a new thing, because I'm thinking about <laughs> back at, not to deepen your concern, but I'm thinking back during the days when we sat near each other at ThoughtBot, I feel like I consistently would hear from you. Like it wasn't loud enough, like you weren't necessarily talking to yourself, but I could definitely hear some mumblings from like next to me. And just as you were thinking through stuff. Or maybe it was more like reactions to stuff that I was hearing, but I wow, that makes sense to me. I think of you as like a talker. That is both uh, comforting and troubling. Uh, troubling in that apparently I do more of this than I even thought, but also comforting in that like this is not a recent development. So apparently I've been idling at this state for a while. Well, if it helps, I I think it's endearing. Like when folks do stuff like that, talk home, maybe that's just sort of like a childhood bias because I'm used to like my dad went home a lot when he was doing stuff and sing in the morning. So I think it's endearing. I have noticed that sometimes I've sat next to people who do talk, but they uh, will cuss a lot and they're very stressed and upset about something and they'll say something like an explicative and I'll turn to them and I'll be like, can I, you know, is everything okay? Like, can I help you? And they're just like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And kind of wave me off. But I don't think they realize like I'm soaking up that stress when Mm. they do that. So that's always, so as long as you're more in the positive space of when you're talking to yourself, I think it's cool. Just go with it. My guess is that I'm probably in the absurd nonsense space. Like you were describing, it's more, it's not so much words that you would say, but sounds. I'm like, yeah, that checks out. That's sort of who I am. But, um, Anyway, less words, more sounds (laughs) and perhaps more uh, pointed technical topics. I had a couple things come up over the past few weeks that I sort of wanted to run by you. There were things that I haven't done in a while or have never done. And uh, I enjoyed trying them out. But I, I yeah, I wanted to run them by you and see what you think. So let's see. We'll start with the first one. and We'll see where we go from there. Within a Rails app, I tend to not do this, but I've recently been namespacing models. So imagine that I'm building an app that's like, I don't know, personal to-do list sort of manager, and I also have a journal in it. And so now the journal has a bunch of associated models. Imagine that there are like different notebooks in the journal and there are tags. And those are models that are specific to the journal sort of idea or feature set within the app. And so what I've started doing is namespacing those models underneath journal. So it'll be like journal colon colon tag, journal colon colon notebook. And at first I was very averse to this, or I don't think I've seen it a lot. I've definitely seen it from time to time, 
but it requires additional sort of hoops to jump through in order to set up relationships and things like that. And the database tables now get prefixed with an underscore and some things. And so there was a little bit of complexity or I had to understand Rails's configuration magic a little bit better. But once I got it, I actually really like it because it now gives me these like conceptual areas of the application. But have you ever worked with that? I think there are a couple models that are like that in the current code base that I'm working on. And at first it tripped me up because I'm not used to working with that sort of namespace for models. So then trying to find the name for the table took me a moment to realize that that namespace was included in the name of the table. So I have, but very limited. I'm curious what drove you to test it out. Like what prompted your interest in trying out this new format? Well, it's actually, I'm working now on two different code bases, or actually two different clients that I'm working with. And so one client actually uses this somewhat pervasively throughout their application. And I saw it and was working comfortably within the app and didn't feel any pain, certainly. And in some ways, I was noticing that it was nice for organizational purposes. And so then I started on a feature in the other code base and the other client ecosystem. And I noticed that I had a set of models that were very much dependent on each other. So it's basically we're building a survey, the survey has questions, the questions have answers, etc, etc. So those are all very much interrelated concepts. So I created a survey model, and then the rest of the models are namespaced underneath that. So it's survey colon colon question survey colon colon answer. And it's been nice. Uh, Again, there's a little bit of work to like set up the namespaces and table names and things like that. But I also, I, I feel somewhat odd saying all of this because this seems like obvious organizational structure. And yet I think Ruby's modules are weird and not terribly, like they don't do any information hiding or things like that. They're just kind of like namespaces basically, but namespaces and modules in other languages I find to be a much more robust, full featured concept. And in Ruby, they're like, I don't know, maybe put some stuff in different places. It's fine. And I think that's why I've not done this in the past, but I I have been enjoying it. Yeah, I remember in the past, it's bitten me before with using trying to like namespace with classes and how it's important to namespace with models to make sure you don't run into any of that sort of like oddity with like the class lookup and Rails gets confused as to which one you're trying to reference. And in terms for organization, like that part feels nice. Like you you have questions and you have answers. And as a developer that's working on the code base, you know, that's very much associated with surveys. So I kind of like that grouping of domain knowledge together. That part sounds really nice. The extra configuration part sounds like it'd be a little tedious, but if you figured out a way to do it pretty straightforward, then it's something that just becomes normal habit and if you haven't experienced any bugs around it, like, yeah, I think it's one of those areas that I have to work with it more to have a strong opinion. But right now I'm sort of like, eh, like, sure, it, it sounds interesting. I'm not against it. I'd be interested in trying it out, put it that way, and then figuring out uh, more how I feel about it. Yep, that largely maps to where I was, where I think I was in a probably not camp before. And then I saw it in use in the one code base. And I thought, like, oh, that seems fine. And then I got into it like, well, this could make sense. And then I had an opportunity to try it out. And thus far, it's been good. But it's still like, it's good, and I think it's fine, and I haven't run into any issues, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, like, Rails auto-loading as we try and upgrade to Rails 6.1 or something like that, because there there's a bunch of it that is Rails-specific class lookup and things like that that are at play, that if those, ever, if those semantics ever changed, then it would be sad times, and probably hard to debug sad times, because it's a lot of Rails convention over configuration type stuff, so... That will be interesting to see in the long term, but for now, it's great. So I recommend it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have to look into it more or see if I have an opportunity to use that and see how it feels. I imagine some of the other configuration you may have to do, as you're mentioning, is you have to specify, do you have to set the table name on the class itself? Like, do you have to say, like, it's going to have like this prefix? 
I don't think so, but I think that's because when I created the table in the migration, I said like survey underscore question was the table that I was creating. And so that created the right thing. Although I'm not sure how Rails differentiates the module lookup from what if I just had a survey question model, like no colons between it, but class survey question with a capital Q inherits from application record. How does it differentiate those two? Because I think it would turn the like camel cased or upper cam, whatever, upper mixed case, whatever that one is, into a snake case table name. So I don't know. It feels like there's some ambiguity in that database table could back two different models. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I also don't know. Like the internals has been one of those things I haven't had to look at in a while to understand how Rails might fail or how it might look up the wrong thing. But yeah, it, it makes sense what you're describing. I think as long as I don't have two models with that sort of conflicting, like one is the camel case version and one is the namespace version, uh, which I definitely shouldn't do, then I'm probably okay. But I will report back if there are any strong indications in the positive or negative direction. Well, and you mentioned that this has already been, it's a pattern that you, you're mimicking off of one of your client projects. Has it, is it a pretty like sizable project with a bunch of other developers or a small project? I'm curious like if they also have feedback on this approach. Uh, I'd call it medium. It's an app that's been around for a while and, and sees good amount of traffic. It's not terribly huge and it's not a, a lot of developers. I think there's only been one or two Rails devs working on that code base over the years, but there's been a good amount of feature development over that time. And there's a reasonable amount of features in different sort of functional areas in the app. And so there has been, there are a handful of examples of these sort of little feature enclaves with the class namespace sort of thing. But yeah, like I said, I, I will report back if there are any new findings, but uh, I think that probably covers it on that topic. Uh, what else is going on in your world? So thanks to a recent tweet from Gio, who's been listening to the Bike Shed and listening to us talking about trying to run individual tests and how we approach that. Gio shared a Vim plugin that I haven't used before called Vim Test. And that's one that I just started implementing today because I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that helpful tweet and I haven't checked into that. So I just added it today and I've been playing around with it. And it has been really nice. Like it's a very easy sort of like plug and play. And it has some easy like mappings that I can do. So that way I don't have to type out like the full functionality of say if I want to run like the closest test or if I want to run the full file or if I want to run the last test that I just ran. But it has some nice options like that. The thing I haven't figured out yet that I'd really like is right now when I'm running a test, it's taking over my screen. And if the test is successful, then it closes out and actually I haven't run a failing test yet. I need to see what it does in that case because I want to be able to see what happens when a test fails. But I'd really like to have it piped to something like dispatch or something else so that way I can see the test in a different screen, but it doesn't take away my code. Because the other approach that I was using with running tests where I forgot the exact plugin, you'll probably be familiar with this because it's a popular one that folks were using at ThoughtBot where you could run tests by hitting the spacebar. And most people had mapped that to a particular plugin. Um, Vim RSpec is the one that comes to mind that is a ThoughtBot project. I think that's it. It might have been a Vim RSpec. So I had that one for a while, but then I stopped using it for that reason. Because then if a test failed, I could see the failure, but I couldn't see my code anymore. And I'm like, well, that's not. I need I need both if I'm going to fix it. But I, then I haven't set it up. So that way it's going to a different screen. So that way I can see both. So that's next on my list. But it was just, it was a really helpful tool that I hadn't used before. And I've enjoyed it. Is it one that you've used? Uh, I've not used it. And I'm actually, I'd forgotten about that tweet again. I remember I saw it and I was like, this is exciting. And then I forgot about it. And now I'm reminded. And that is, again, exciting. I've yet to 
since seeing that have a time where I'm running just specs. So I've just been running RSpec specs and those I have, I think it's Vim RSpec. It might be Vim Spec Runner. I've done some weird stuff with Vim and test running in the past. So I don't even know what my configuration is right now, but what it is is sufficient for the RSpec things that I'm doing. But once I go back to anything that is in just land, then I will definitely revisit it at that point. Although similarly, I think there is like a, a portion of that code base that I would want to be about determining what is the current spec or the spec file or, or you know, like what's the right command to run. But then ideally hand that off to something else or have like a parameterized command string that you can say, oh, please let me be in charge and I'll dispatch it over to a Tmux thing or use Vim dispatch that plugin or anything like that. It's actually a good little case study in like separation of concerns and having a thing that's just focused on figuring out what to run and then another thing that figures out how to run it. Because I almost always run all of my specs in a separate Tmux pane that I have dedicated to that purpose that's just sitting alongside. Vim just basically sends the message over to that Tmux pane, but Vim is just kind of chilling there while the tests are running rather than backgrounding it or opening a new Tmux pane or anything like that. Perfect. Yeah, that's that forwarding that I want to set up. So I have like this dedicated Tmux pane that's running all the tests, but that way I'm not exiting. I also haven't tried it out with anything other than an RSpec because I just started playing with it today. So I was getting it up and running with just like a Rails project. I would also be intrigued to see how it does with some of the other test suites. I imagine Geo shared this with us specifically because we'd mentioned like wanting to be able to run specific tests for different projects. So it seems to support both. They also have different strategies that it supports. So you can have specific strategies that will then run the test uh, commands with dispatch or some other also, if you're using NeoVim, uh, there are some that are specifically for uh, some other ones that I haven't heard before, so I won't name them. I'll just let someone look at the docs. But there's one of the strategies that's called stuff, and I'm not mm. sure what it does, but just because it's stuff, because I'm, I'm stuff in yep. all our Slack channels, I really want to use stuff. That makes sense. Stuff with stuff. Running your tests with stuff. I'll have to make up a reason to need to use the stuff strategy. That makes sense. Got to stay true to your brand. So so that's one of the things that I've been up to today and improving my daily workflow. What's some of the other things you've been up to? I think you mentioned at the beginning, there's a, a list of topics that you'd love to run through. Indeed. So actually circling back to the, the sort of survey example that I gave, we got into a situation where most of the users are authenticated. They're working in the system. We know who they are, all that good stuff. But occasionally we have a portion of the system that is exposed publicly so people can land on these pages and then uh, they essentially have to fill out a questionnaire before they can make it onto the next pages. And throughout all of this, they're unauthenticated. And then at the end, they're actually going to fill out like an info capture form if they qualify through that survey, essentially. And so what we want to do is save their answers, save basically how they respond to the survey, both in the case that they disqualify. So then they're kicked out and they basically see a, a notice that says, unfortunately, based on your answers, you know, you're not a viable participant or they end up at the info capture. And then we have this additional information. We want to associate their answers from the survey to that now record that we have of who this person is. And so we rolled around a couple different ideas. So the, the model of the survey is pretty simple. There's a survey model. It has many questions. And the questions have many answers. Answers know if they are qualifying or not. And so when a person responds to any given question, they're posting, they're creating a response. And we then look at, you know, which answers did they choose? Are they all qualifying? If so, you get to continue on. But that's the fundamental data model. So survey has many questions, has many answers. 
And the concern that I had was that, well, this can change over time, or we might like add a new answer, or we might remove an answer, or we might reword an answer, or we add a new question, or any number of things. And any version that I could think of of trying to persist this in a very normalized way just didn't quite make sense. So I ended up in a world of JSON, JSONB. I actually forget if I went with JSON or JSONB. Uh, I know there's a difference. I know I looked it up at the time, and I forget. I think I might have gone JSON. But anyway, that's that's not the question that I have. Mostly it's, what do you think of that? So basically what I'm doing now is when they get to the end, either disqualified or qualified, and then they fill out the survey thing, we create a response object that has a serialized JSON representation of the full survey that they took. So this is the survey, here is the question, here are the answers, and they selected this answer for this question. And we have that for the whole thing. So we both capture their answers, but also the context of what was the question at the time that they were asked it. And that whole thing is a JSON object that then gets stored alongside and and we keep that around. But I always feel weird when I go with JSON. I always feel like I'm cutting a corner or I'm going to regret it later. I have regretted it later plenty of times where I'm like, oh, that was, that's not normalized enough or the data is lying to me now and we've migrated the system, but suddenly we're getting all these errors every third time someone loads the page and just weird edge cases like that. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building a great product by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory blow, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed, one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Thank you again to Scout APM for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. What do you think? Would you have used JSON here? Would you have talked me out of it? I am curious what you're just talking about in terms of some of the ways that you've regretted it. So I'd love to unravel that. But before we circle back to that particular question, you mentioned something a moment ago that would also push me in that direction of using like JSON and JSONB. And it's the fact that questions and answers can change. And you really want to capture the input that someone has provided as a timestamp. Like at this time, at this release of the software, these were the questions that we were asking. These are the answers that we were providing them with. And these are the ones that they chose. So my initial reaction is, thumbs up. That makes sense to me. I agree that storing it as JSON feels like an odd approach because it's not something that we do often and it feels so unstructured. But in this case where you don't know what changes you're going to have and you also want to know the historical context of when someone was filling out these questions like a week ago and maybe the questions have changed since then and you don't have to keep adding new columns to a table to then reflect all the various states that survey could have represented in the various questions. So that seems good. I am intrigued that you chose JSON over JSON B. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I don't actually know that I did. I forget. I remember thinking about it, researching it. And like every other time I've done it, I immediately forgot what the distinction is. I know that the B stands for binary, but I don't know why I would want one or the other. Do you know that off the top of your head? I think this was the first bike shed that you and I recorded where I was so excited. It was the first or second. It was one of the early ones. So it's where I did my Postgres song at the very beginning. Uh, it's not really a song. I was just really happy uh, to be recording really the bike good. shed. Yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, I, I still remember some of the differences. So JSON stored in plain text format. And then as you'd mentioned, JSON B stored in that binary format. So then JSON has a slower read because it's stored as a text. So it's going to need to be parsed each time that you're reading it. It also preserves the original format. So all the order of the questions and the answers, if there are duplicate keys, it's going to store that as well. All the white space, it's really just a raw payload that's being stored in that column. While if you're using JSON-B, it's going to optimize the payload that you're storing. So it's going to remove duplicate keys and the last one wins. So if you have duplicate keys, that could be a concern for using JSON-B. It's faster on reads and it supports Postgres functions. So if you want to do any sorting, querying, if you need to index on a particular field. So it really comes down to what do you plan to do with the data, whether JSON sounds like the right approach or JSON-B sounds like the right approach. I feel JSON-B provides more flexibility because I'm less concerned about the writes being a bit slower, which is true for JSON-B. I want the reads to typically be faster. And then I'm likely going to want to do some sort of data analysis on that payload that we're storing. So JSON-B is typically my default unless we're just truly storing it for historical compliance reasons. We really don't want to investigate any of the data that we're storing, but we just have to store it for some reason. I am deeply impressed with the amount of knowledge that you just dropped right there. (laughs) That was like a full blog that you just did off the top of your noggin. Uh, And I'm glad because as you were saying that I did quickly pull it up behind the scenes. And it sounds like you were leaning towards JSON-B as your general recommendation. And I did use JSON-B. So I feel good. I actually did the thing. Perfect. Yeah, that's what makes sense to me. JSON would probably uh, work as well. But JSON-B just feels more flexible and future proof for what we're likely going to want to do with the data. Yep. Although the particular one of like, I want to do some sort of analysis or aggregation or querying or indexing. If I start to think about that, then in my mind, that's a design pressure to say like, you probably don't want this in JSON, then you probably want this in a more structured data format. And so there's this like very thin middle line of like, it's semi structured data, but it's evolving in a way that's too complicated. So it's okay to put it in this intermediate but non like foreign keys are basically the concern in my mind is like this data can lie and if i pull back some of this data in the future and i parse it and it tells me like question 37 was answered with answer two a question 37 doesn't exist b answer two is not a real answer. like both of those could be lies because this is just a binary blob of data I see. So when you're storing the questions and the answers you're not storing the question as well you're storing a reference to the question so I'm for each of the objects, I'm serializing their ID and then the relevant state. So I do have all that information. And at the time that I'm serializing them, I am being purposeful to try and do it in a way that is like trustworthy and semi-validated. And I, I trust that data going in. But down the road, someone could delete a question. And so now it says like question 37, here's the answer. And it's like, no, that's no longer a thing. That question doesn't exist. Whereas if I had foreign keys with dependent destroy or something like that, now I wouldn't have this orphan data that doesn't make sense within my system that I'm trying to back. Like, why is it in this shape and those sort of things? So, yes, I agree that foreign keys are incredibly important. And I think you're in a space where it's okay that we don't have that foreign key reference because the questions are going to change. And that's one of the reasons that we do want to capture that question at that time. And it's unlikely that we'll need to know that this question was ID five and then be able to associate it with question five, even though that question now represents something new. I think that's fine because you're really just trying to capture the context of what was provided at this time versus where are we now? I think so, too. And I'm glad to have your second set of eyes on this. And you you seem to approve of the design decisions that I've made. But man, I've been burned before. 
this solidly falls into the camp of things that I'm weary of. And I don't know, whenever I find myself doing a thing that I'm weary of, I'm like, I'm, I'm weary, apparently. Yeah, I'm intrigued in the ways that you've been burned by storing. I'm guessing with JSON or JSONB or something similar. I'm trying to think of any particular anecdote around JSON or JSONB within the context of a Postgres system or a, a relational database system. I think partly the resistance that I have is the times that I've worked on systems that used Mongo. And almost uniformly, I've worked on a handful of them, and almost all of them had a sort of ad hoc re-implementation of relational ideas, but it was less effective and eventually consistent, and data lied to us in a bunch of places throughout the app. And granted, this was Mongo years ago. I know that it's come a long way, but it's, it's mostly that idea of, no, it's fine. We don't need to think about the structure of our data. We can cut corners sounds too more judgmental than I mean here, but like we don't need to spend the effort and be very purposeful about this. Let's just go quickly in this direction. And I've worked on systems that started in that way. And then sometime down the road, I came into the project and everyone deeply regrets that decision to be less purposeful in the data structure. Uh, and it's not inherent, like you can do a well-structured system within Mongo, but I think a lot of people reach to Mongo for its freedom. And JSONB is the escape hatch within Postgres that allows us to do similar things. And so it may actually be not a real thing. Like the handful of times I'm going to reach for JSONB within a Postgres system, they're probably fine. And I'm obviously concerned enough that I'm going to talk myself out of it most of the time. But it's, I think it's that spectrum that concerns me. But I don't, I can't think of a specific case of using one JSON column within a system that I really regretted. I think that's true. But I'm sure they're out there. I like that you take that time to try to talk yourself out of it, to maintain referential like integrity, to have the foreign keys that resonates with me. I have seen this now. This is the third time since you're mentioning it, that JSONB seems to be like a good way for handling surveys, or at least a good way for handling you have changing questions and you have answers and you want to capture all of it and it may change tomorrow, but you want to know what someone provided yesterday. I'd be intrigued how other folks that are working heavily with like questions and surveys and if they're taking a similar approach or if they have found a way that is more structured than storing it in a JSONB column. I imagine they have, especially if that's like your bread and butter for what your app does. You've probably found a different way to to handle this particular pattern. But if it's something that your app does on the side where you have some questions and surveys, then yeah, JSON. I don't know. I, I have not been bit yet by JSONB, knock on wood. May it remain that way for both of us. But yeah, well, uh, I appreciate you talking through that with me. And again, the, the knowledge drop there. You just had that all on the top. You really deeply understand JSON and JSONB within the context of Postgres, so props on that. But um, yeah, what else? What else is up in uh, in your world? <laughs> well, thanks. Oh, I discovered a Ruby keyword that I wasn't aware of that I just enjoy, and I think I'm going to start trying to pepper into my code more often. And it's the fail keyword. It's synonymous with race, and it does the same job as race. Um, it's part of the kernel module, which is also included by the class object. I don't know why I just shared all of that. Um, that's not necessarily relevant, but it's synonymous with race. But I really like the way it communicates what's happening. So I, I find that I often revisit conversations with other developers about when are exceptions really helpful, when are exceptions more painful, how do they make it more difficult to then write code that can respond to failure and then communicate failure. And as I'm having more of these conversations while I was reading through, I think it was Avdi Grimm on his blog post, I'll make sure to add a link to it in the show notes, where he'd mentioned that he really likes the fail keyword just because it explicitly states like, I'm 
going to fail here. Like I've gotten to a point of failure. I don't know what to do. There's no really good way to handle this gracefully or do something else. So I'm just going to fail. And I just like that approach of being very explicit about the intent of it is just another raise. But yeah, I just I like that particular wording. So that was something that I discovered recently that I'm excited about. Interesting. Do you know if it is truly a just like an alias or does it actually have any other semantics different from raise? I don't truly know if it's just an alias or not, but on the brief bit that I read, I'd be surprised if it's not, but I, I can't give a concrete answer. I'd have to look it up. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't use that at all. It's familiar in the back of my head, but in that sort of like, yeah, I think I heard about that once, but I, I don't think I've ever used it. Although I think for similar reasons, I enjoy it because I think that the name is closer to how I would want to use exceptions. Like I don't want to use exceptions for control flow, so I don't want to just raise anywhere. But if I get to the edge of like, this is an unrecoverable situation. If we don't have this config value, then we just have to fail here because we can't possibly do more work and we definitely should stop processing. So fail as a way to say like, cool, end of the road, we're done. As opposed to in the other cases, my preference is to return data for different failure modes. If they're like known controllable failure modes, you know, an API processing some data coming in and it may succeed and write some stuff to the database or do something else. I'd rather that not be raising an error and, you know, using exceptions to break out of the control flow and all of those concerns that we talk about all the time. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I have found that as I'm revisiting conversations about exceptions with other developers, I found that active record, the finds method is a really good example that I use as sort of like, this is an example of where this method it raises if you give it a value where it doesn't have a matching record for that integer. And that's surprising to me. Like each time, and I often forget too. Like I see find and I'm like, oh yeah, we'll get back nil. Nope, it's gonna raise instead. So it surprises me each time because I often forget that that's its behavior. And then often the fact that I can't find a record may not be exceptional to my code base or may not be exceptional to my scenario. So the fact that active record is mandating that this is an exceptional case makes it harder for me to react and then gracefully rescue from that. It also means I have to have that insight to know that find is going to raise if it doesn't find the record that I'm looking for. So it just increases maybe the cycles that I have to spend in programming if I've forgotten that find is going to raise and then I find that out the hard way and then I have to go in and then I have to rescue it and then do something else instead. So I found that find is a, a really good example that I use for talking about exceptions and why they're not a great way of communicating failure when you really want to let the caller decide if a failed state is exceptional or not. Yeah, it is interesting that find has that unique behavior. And that's the sort of thing that you just have to know, because the other ones like find by and other things like that, all have the bang variant that will raise if they don't. And I think of those two options, either raising when you can't find it or nil, my preference would be neither of those options. And instead, give me some data that tells me successfully found the thing. And here's the thing or failure did not find and have those be enumerated more clearly in the code and like a, a maybe value. But interestingly, just this past week, I've been poking around and leveraging the fact that find will raise. So like in a controller action, if I use find and then it raises at the top level, I want to say this is an application controller or somewhere, somewhere mixed into the rail stack. I don't know where, but it's taken care of for me. There is a rescue from active record not found, and then it does a 404. And so now that sort of fundamental facet of how Rails apps and web apps generally should work it's just taken care of for me. And I don't need to think about like, well, if we get nil here, then I have to, let's say I got to return out and 
Like the exception actually really nicely breaks me out of the control flow, which directly contradicts everything I was saying earlier. So it's good to know that we have balance in our world. But uh, yeah, I was really enjoying that functionality this week. But it's a it's a weird single case that I can think of where I'm like, because of the conventions and because we're in a well understood world, this is good. But generally, I don't like it. Controllers are a nice exception to the case of using exceptions, where I agree, because we already have that implementation set up for us where if it's going to raise and we're going to rescue it and return a 404 and that's the thing that we want to do that feels like a pattern that I am also okay with because I have the expectation of like this is how we're going to handle it. it's already handled for me I won't be surprised by it and I also don't need to implement an exception handler for that particular case so yeah controllers break the mold for me as well I also like how you mentioned that active record does provide some of the other functions like find by so that way if you don't want to raise and then that's great so you've got the option so you can go with one that raises or you can go with one that doesn't. But most of our code bases are product focused and they're not built for designing web applications. So they don't have that flexibility. So if we're implementing a particular class and functionality that goes with it, we will likely provide one way to do this thing. And there's not a second way that provides a non-raising way. So when someone implements that one way of doing it and it always raises, that's the one where I'm like, I don't have a non-raising option. So I always want to default to the non-raising option. So yeah, it's just kind of fun to revisit topics that I already really care about and enjoy discussing and kind of understanding like, why is it exceptions feel like something a lot of people will naturally reach for? And then what are some really good ways that we can respond to failure instead or communicate failure? Because there is something where I have noticed like it's a very common thing where like people that are fairly new to Rails or even fairly experienced with Rails, honestly, do really enjoy using exception-based control flow. And that's something that I enjoy understanding, like what is it that people really like about this pattern versus me who has felt mostly pain from that pattern? I think Rubyists love when the code can hide. Like beauty is one of the like driving factors of Ruby and Rails. And those like ergonomics and how concise can I make this? And especially I think in years past, DSLs and things like that were more popular in the Ruby world. And I think there's been a little bit of a reaction and perhaps a, a correction away from that. But I think that really fits the ethos really well of the community or of the like language. But other languages are, are more explicit. Actually, I, I just pulled it up because this is something that always comes to mind for me is the Zen of Python. Are you familiar with the Zen of Python? I am because of you. You've shared it with me before. Yeah, that's my favorite thing. So the one that comes to mind here is special cases aren't special enough to break the rules. And I love that. And I love so much of the Zen of Python. And then I go and write Ruby every day. And I don't know what to do with that just internal contradiction. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And yet here I am loving Python's words and writing Ruby all day. <laughs> I don't know. I love Ruby. <laughs> I love Ruby too. I just, again, I don't know what to do with this. But yes, I, I do understand that as I have experienced, I'm guessing because you're talking about more like the experience of typed languages and having more like concrete feedback from like your compiler and then also being able to have like the type annotations. That's the part that you miss. And Ruby is really more of like a free for all. And it has a really like nice entry point. You can get started and you can have a lot of fun with Ruby versus the typed languages often have a far higher barrier to entry. And so that makes those languages a bit harder. But I, I'm with you. I, I also really like both, but I really love both. Like they, they both, I guess, satisfy inner parts of myself. Or one, I really want to be more like stable and have the types and the compiler do a lot of the work for me. But then I also really like the freedom that Ruby gives me. I remember at one point someone someone on the ThoughtBot team, I think it was Mike Burns, made a comment that 
I should be allowed to write small talk, but all my colleagues should be required to write Haskell. And it was sort of a flippant thing of like, yeah, 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 no, everybody else should have to do the robust, well thought out thing, but I want to live free and just, you know, write whatever. And so his version of that was small talk. And I really, I really liked that. I think that exemplifies the idea pretty well. So uh, yeah, I'm just going to go write small talk, but y'all are living in Haskell or Idris or one of those dependently typed adventure languages or something. But yeah. What's that second one you said? You said Haskell and Idris? Idris. Yeah. Like Elba, but unrelated. Oh. <laughs> Idris is an even more like Haskell is definitely used in production and I think has a, a good bit more mindshare and, and code bases and things. Idris, I think, is a little bit more experimental, but it has the idea of dependent types, which we're now well past the point that I actually know anything about. But let's see if I can say anything useful. Uh, I think dependent types allow you to say things like this is a number and it is not zero. And the type system can verify that it is not zero. Because even in a, a language that guarantees no runtime errors, that's not actually true because you can divide by zero. Congratulations. There's no way to get out of that problem. You just invented a black hole in your computer and it's sad. So the program has to shut down at that point. And Idris and other dependently typed languages allow for deeper semantics in the type system than even say like a Haskell or an Elm can say. And it's got a cool name. But uh, having said all of that, and again, not actually knowing any of it, I feel like I've taken us on way too much of a tangent and we should probably start to wrap up. That sounds great. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.